Hi, and welcome to Global Governance Futures, based out of the Global Governance Institute at University College London. This is a podcast about the challenges facing humanity and possible global responses. If you're new to the show and you want to get a list of our favourite books, other resources, listen to past shows and to join our community, go to ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance. We are really delighted to have Dr. Bio Akamulafe on the podcast today. Bio is a post-humanist thinker, public intellectual, poet teacher, and in his own words, a practicing and recovering psychologist. The author of two books and many essays on the urgent cosmological demands of our time. He is also the chief creator of the Emergence Network and host of the online post-activist course, We Will Dance With Mountains. Bayo received the 2021 New Thought Walden Award in recognition of his role in changing the world and making it a better place. A descendant of Yoruba fields of archetypal becomings and mythopoetic landscapes, most importantly though, from what I gather in Bayo's writings, he's a loving partner to EJ and father to two children, Aletha and Kia. Bayo is an individual that is difficult to capture in words. He is a profound and thought-provoking storyteller and a constantly evolving human, though if there is anything to be learned from his writing, it is that these terms are themselves loaded. Bio dares us to reconsider what we know, how we know it, and the ways that we cope with crises, monsters, and our own cosmic insignificance. He also invites us to not rush back into the normal. In his words, the times are urgent, let us slow down. Frankly, I've been deeply moved, touched, and troubled by Bio's writings. I'm grateful and honored to be here with you, and I look forward to learning from you and hopefully with you. Um, and so to kick things off, my first question to you would be, um, as a person myself who's been told I'm too sensitive or too intense or too much and that I get overwhelmed really easily, and that's a criticism, I really, what I really admire from your writing and your work and what really resonates with me is how you wield this vulnerability and confusion as a powerful tool for moving through life and something that should be valued um, above instead of criticized. And I kind of wanted to know how you got to that stage and how you would recommend other people kind of wield their vulnerability as well in a, in a more useful way. Mm. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you for that beautiful um, welcome and introduction. Slightly exaggerated in my wife's view. Um, but um, yes, to answer your question, I think modern... Modern um, untold epistemologies pride themselves in um, facilitating coherence, right? Categorization, naming things. There's a beautiful proverb here in, in India that uh, name the color blinds the eye. I love it so much because of what it invites us to consider, not just the risks of naming, but the volatility of ontology, the volatility of bodies, that which we, we think we know and name is more diasporic and atmospheric and migrant than we can, than language can appreciate. This isn't new. This is Deleuze. This is Gathari. This is um, Derrida. This is anyone who has dabbled in the metaphysics of presence and the metaphysics of impossibility or the metaphysics of plausibility or whatever. Um, so I was saying that modernity 
dabbles in coherence, intelligibility, presence, you know, identity. Um, but now we are in the so-called Anthropocene. Um, and what it does is that it, it erodes the edges, the neat and stable and settled and unbothered edges that we've gotten used to. Where does the human stop and where does ecology begin? Where does Zoe stop and where does Sam begin? You know, how we understand ourselves. I mean, we are swimming in pharmacological, psychotropic, theological, political waters. And it's almost impossible for us to make sense of the world unless we come to some kind of appreciation that we are not as well put together as we think we are, as our theologies invite us to think that we are. Um, this is what, I've, and I've, I've dropped the mic and called his name. This is what Deleuze, you know, the great duo of Deleuze and Gattari, um, you know, called flights of, you know, flights away from circles of convergence. That is sometimes, especially if we tend to think of the world in terms of assemblages, then how the new happens is when something runs away like a slave from a cotton plantation, something runs away from that assemblage. I think we're in a time when confusion is not pathological any longer, right? Is, is a gift. It's, um, it's an invitation to do something different. The rupture, the seismic shifts, the metabolic rifts, the uh, fault lines we're experiencing, the way we have learned to deal with these um, instances of reality is to cover them up, put a Band-Aid on it, name it something, and push it back into the wilds if it's untenable or if it's too unwieldy. Now, I think our invitation is, I think one strategy is to sit with these cracks in the ground. Um, so the confusion, the so-called, you're too sensitive, you know, what psychologists like to say, you know, get back together. You know, the, the storyline of, you know, contemporary psychotherapies to put you back together so you're productive again within regimes of sanity. I think now we need to turn to the edges, to the wilds beyond our fences, and notice that those things that are desirous, you know, um, lim those liminal flows that we're in that exceed us are doing and producing different possibilities. And until we stay with them as a political project, until we build cartographies of failure, right? Until we stay with those, you know, migrant fugitivities, we will keep on getting stuck in this circle. So, so Zoe, your, your porous boundaries is a possibility for new ontologies. It's a possibility for us to listen differently. It may not always pan out and be successful and lead to new settlements with its own colonial shadows, but it is how, in my view, worlds change. That was a really fantastic answer. And I guess kind of building from that. So I've read quite a few of your shorter pieces and some of your longer pieces in preparation. And something that I noticed was that even from, so you wrote a really interesting article about Harambe in 2016. Um, and there was another writing, I think, titled The Soul is Not Within. Um, right. I can't remember any of them. <laughs> no, I mean, they really, I mean, I've done a deep dive and they really stayed with me. Um, right. And I'm, so my, I guess my question from that is, 
you know, you've seen this coming for a while now. I feel like there's the idea of the soul is not within and we need to be more porous. Um, I kind of saw it building through your writings. Um, how do you feel about it now as opposed to when you wrote maybe in 2016? Like, do you think there's been a big shift um, in like the acceleration of everything sort of falling apart and it being harder and harder to cover up these cracks and try and name them? Okay, this, this question pushes me into very controversial territory, into conspiratorial territories. Um, and without leaning one way or the other, one might start to consider the ethics of, and I'm doing a talk in New York about this very soon, and I'm, I'm writing about this as well. Um, one might start to consider the ethics of vaccine hesitancy. Um, what has been named vaccine hesitancy. Um, I don't have a position that neatly can be reduced to yes or no, right? I come from the global South and some of the arguments, you know, put forward, like, like if you don't take this, if you don't take this now, uh, then you're contributing to harm. It feels like a specious and I don't know. <laughs> like a strange argument to make because harm isn't new to <laughs> many people in the world. Harm is, harm is anchored and entangled with someone in, in London picking up a phone and using and dialing the phone in that ordinary moment could be tugging on networks of suffering. I wrote a piece some time ago on Facebook um, about donuts and donut consumption actually tied to the, um, uh, to the wiping away of Sumatran tigers, you know, that donuts are actually figures of, you know, uh, what's the word that wants to come to mind? Extinction, right? Just the mere act of eating a donut is tethered to a, the death of a tiger somewhere. I don't want to go through the links of that, but, some of my more conscientious friends were like, yeah, I get the link. I get the entanglement, but, you know, I still want to take a donut. And I was examining that in the context of, was it, what's the, what's the American brand? Was it Dunkin' Donuts? I don't know if it's Dunkin' Donuts, but, or Krispy Kreme or something. Basically saying that if you have a vaccine card, if you come in here, we will give you a donut for life, something like that. And I was just examining how, you know, these ethical and political convergences reinforce the paradigms that gave birth to our pandemic in the first place, right? So one thing I want to say about that is that harm isn't new, right? Both positions, I think, are untenable. Um, Anti-vaccine or, or pro-vaccine are untenable. That there is a place where we're being invited to sit with the cracks, with the impossibility, the un un unwieldy, territory that has been evoked by this alien that has come into our territory. So I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm straying too far from, from course. Uh, I guess what I want to, what I want to say about uh, staying with the trouble or remind me, Zoe, what was the core of your question again? I've traipsed off too far. I struggle to find the core of my question myself. But it, was, um, <laughs> it happens to me all the time. Given um, how you were writing and seeing the world back in 2016, when arguably yes. everything sort of kicked off, um, 
how do you view maybe how that evolution um, and that maybe acceleration of degradation of, of everything? The point I wanted to make and, and, and struggle to make for a while is it has to do with, I, I think I'm feeling apprehensive. At some level, I feel the Anthropos is the product of modernity. It's a project of settlement. It's a project of post-Holocene settlement, right? Let's create a world that is flat enough for rational, um, um, disembodied, abstractual, ritual-making, place-making work to happen. Let's do that. And that's what white modernity is about. It's about purity. It's about escape. It's about arrival. It's Baldur dying and Freya seeking the world to be silent in the face of her son's death you know, using those mythopoetic um, values. Um, I think my point is that I'm feeling a lot apprehensive these days because I feel that a portal was opened and it's closing now. Um, this portal is, feels like an opportunity for us to, to stay with the trouble of the Anthropos, of our immurement within individual territories, right? This isn't even... So exclusively indigenous. Again, Deleuze and Gattari were against the identity, uh, identity paradigm. You know, the, the notion that we're um, uh, that we are imprisoned, incarcerated be- within the individual. And I think what we're doing right now, especially the ways that epidemiological conversations are happening, tribalized into these two camps, we're not allowing for something else to happen. And those who are conflicted and are on the, you know, usually wrapped up into a monolithic community of people who are too stupid to understand the science of it. What, is, what, what seems to be happening is that we're rushing back to normal. We're rushing to close the porosities. We're, we're rushing to, to close off the world into another troubling reductionistic trope of us versus them and them meaning the variants that are now crowding the streets, right? It's those aliens. Let's get rid of them. Where are guns? Let's shoot them all. It's almost like a video game right now. It's that bizarre. So I guess the invitation is there are questions that are not being allowed to sprout because of the convergence, the cybernetic patterns, the algorithms we're used to. It's just about let's get rid of it and get back to normal. Let's stop each other from harming each other. But there are other things that we're asking, other tensions that I think are possible to sit with right now. For instance, what does health mean in the Anthropocene? What does it mean to be well when um, wellness and well-being and recovery are tied to ecological devastation? If we rush back to normal, what does it do for the world that produced this being, this becoming in the first place? And do we continue to see ourselves as central and sovereign? Yeah, I could go on and on. That was really good. Um, And I did read I, Coronavirus, Mother, Monster, Activist, and that was really some powerful stuff. Um, (laughs) I know that Sam would like to ask a question. Um, So I will let Sam. Thanks, so. Yeah. So we've talked about the importance of straying and for kind of losing one's way, walking outside of the village and maybe getting lost in uncertainty. Um, but I wanted to ask maybe a, your kind of personal perspective. Obviously, I, I know you've moved to India. How did you 
stray or seek to stray to understand when you might have let go of the physical tools that we normally use to understand. So you 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 put down your lonely planet travel guide or your kind of your Wikipedia page <laughs> on uh, you know Indian faiths and culture, um, but your 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 kind of discovering hands are still guided by some mind forge manacles to quote uh, William Blake in in discovering, and that's something that I found quite challenging. You know, coming from uh, you know. Britain and the, the colonial past and present that, that guides those hands in trying to understand people that are, you know, 99% the same as myself, but without using uh, Disney films and that, that kind of thing to understand it. So perhaps if you could uh, just talk about that and you can use maybe India uh, as an example, but it can go anywhere about maybe unlearning and the importance of that. The story of India is simple. A ravishingly beautiful lady walked into our university compound um, and slayed everyone. And I was the nerd who wasn't supposed to even be close to this lady, but I won. It's as simple as that. I, <laughs> uh, my wife, who is Indian, came as a lecturer and a professor and I came to teach in Nigeria where I was teaching. She was in the Department of Biology. I was in the Department of Psychology, and in between, some chemistry happened, and I decided, yeah, I don't want to be great anymore. I was trained in this university. This is the university I graduated in, and it's a Christian university, you see. And so stories and narratives about being the next great one was part of my training, being the next Mandela figure, being the next Kofi Annan, you know, being the next anything, you know, great, just be great. Um, and I was really on that path until um, Cupid shot his, I don't know what Cupid uses these days, maybe sent an app or WhatsApp message. And, <laughs> and I, took, I took the fall and I fell, basically. Um, and I moved to India. We decided to do something different with our lives. Um, and it, in this sense, it is, it, you know, it reminds me of that prayer, that seditious prayer that we pray in Nigeria. When I say we, it's just a small group of people, poetic minded people that say the prayer, may the road be rough. May your road be rough. It's not exactly a pleasant prayer to pray in a Pentecostal community um, like the South of Nigeria. Um, but the meaning I love, the real meaning of that is, is that in a sense, may the road rise up to meet your feet. That is, may you experience the road as having imperatives of its own than your map can articulate. And I love that idea of meeting halfway, you know, like Karen Barad's book, Meeting the Universe Halfway. The road rises to meet our feet and our feet also presses and somewhere between some new direction is summoned. In that same sense, I do not think strain is human activity. Right? I do not think it as anthropocentric agency. I do not think it as something we can summarily do. Right? I think of it as the confluence of the human and the more than human. Right? Somewhere between something strange and monstrous is produced, whether it's meeting an Indian woman and falling in love. And that, what love means in that instance is the igniting of passions that I cannot even call my own, that are ancestral, biological, political, and 
somehow I just find myself straying away from the usual, right? Because I was supposed to marry culturally a Nigerian woman, preferably someone in my tradition, a Yoruba person. That's what everyone expected me to do. But I strayed away, not because I chose to, but because the moment created that agency. In the same way, strain is the, the interaction of contingencies. It's like a constellation of events that makes it possible in the terms of a gift for us to do something different. Um, uh, in, in that sense, you know, I think I've made this point before. It is not ours to do. It is not human exclusive work. It is human hyphenated with ecologies that make strain possible. Yeah, it's, that's, a, that's a great way of putting it. And I'm kind of reminded of the, that Yoruba understanding of that web of interconnectedness that I think you've yeah. written about before. Um, yeah. And that's something that I've been thinking about quite a lot in relation, in relation to, um, I don't know if you've come across Jason Moore's uh, capitalism in the web of, uh, I think it's the web of life. And it's the idea, you know, capitalism is part of this web of society. Humans are part yeah. of this as well. And I was yeah. wondering if you could speak about perhaps from a Yoruba perspective, how that web of interconnectedness is something that is perhaps missing from our understanding of uh, you know, humans' place in the, in the planet, the planet's place in the cosmos, um, from that unique perspective. Right. I mean, modernity is just as much entanglement, right? It is not a, a trope or place apart, you know, um, to think through entanglement is to notice that modernity is the performative entangled practice of denying entanglement, <laughs> right? It's the, it's the um, it, right, right. What it does well is to try to subsidize um, individuality by pushing away its messier, you know, imbrications to the edges, right? So America as an empire I should say U.S. America. Some of my friends might be angry that I said America. America is not just U.S. You know, it's, it's Mexico and all of So the United States of America as empire is heavily subsidized by the, um, not just by the media, uh, not just by its military operations, not just by espionage and the CIA and its in interventions in other um, economies and politics, for instance, in South America, you know, it's, it's subsidized by ontologies that try to push away these messier imbrications in order to create the American dream, in order to reproduce manifest destiny, in order to produce the idea that it's a city set upon a hill, right? So modernity isn't, you know, I think, I, I like to think of it as rectilinearism, Right. And rectilinearism is the postering of bodies um, in an order of rectitude, moral rectitude, ethical rectitude, political rectitude. It's about being straight up. But we are actually diagonal and oriented bodies. Um, and by actual, I don't mean, you know, I don't mean that behind the scenes. I mean, the strategies and the worlds that I think with prefer to think of it in terms of diagonality. We are oriented. We are entangled bodies. Um, we are caught up in webs of life. The Yoruba people do not know how to think about um, causality in terms of some Newtonian, Cartesian, bill billiard ball process. To them, 
Aye is what, you know, Aye is this invested field, force field of becomings that, you know, from, from whence everything arises, you know, um, the, the Yoruba trickster god, Eshu, is said to be the trickster, you know, the, the man of the crossroads who gives birth to everything. And the crossroad idea, what the Yoruba people call Orita, or the place where the three roads connect, you know, is the idea that you cannot think of about the world in some uh, clinical duality, like us versus them, objectivity versus subjectivity, in versus out, and not notice how these things borrow from each other, how, did, how these things feed into each other. So, yes, I think, and I'm increasingly, you know, attracted to those philosophies that I thought of as nothing growing up today. I'm, I'm returning to them in some sense and playing with them again and remembering, remembering, reconfiguring my bodies, you know, to notice how the world is rich and beyond utterance. Thank you so much for that. I think it's so interesting to dive into the power of stories. Um, I know that Jess would like to ask a question. So Jess, please. Thank you. Um, yeah, there's so many ways that we could go. <laughs> I've got so much spinning around in my head right now, but um, I wanted to touch on something that you uh, said about uh, just now about, about duality and um, that resonated in the context of uh, the coronavirus and how we're handling uh, this whole situation, the us versus them, the idea that it's like a video game that we're trying to, yeah. you know, battle the variants. Um, yeah. And I wanted to sort of bring it back to this portal that you mentioned, why rushing back to normal may not be the best plan. Um, and so what kind of agency do you think this uh, crisis has given us and why are is society so um, unwilling to accept uh, the agency that ecology has given us to, to change and to sort of disassemble this colonial modernity mindset? I, I think I got the heart of the question. I didn't quite get the, the um, extreme parts. I mean, the end of, of that, because if I think there's some glitch, but hail to the gods of the glitch. Glitches are intelligible in their own ways, right? Um, uh, um, I've been revisiting faith. I grew up in faith communities as a teenager growing up. Um, and faith was always rendered as belief in a supreme being. But I've been trying to um, write out and experiment with a, a more ecological notion of faith as how bodies borrow other bodies in order to meet complexity. Right. Um, so in a sense, um, the wasp and the orchid um, are faith, are in a faith relationship, right? Um, and and the, the microbiota, the, the bacteria in our guts are in a faith relationship with us, right? It, it's this sense, this sense of the, the holobiont, right? What Lynn Margulis called the holobiont, that bodies are never independent. We need other bodies to thrive. We need other bodies to breathe and to eat and to process milk and to, and, and to go to the toilet and to do all the things that we usually take as ordinary. But we are composite beings and these agencies, you know, are, 
are fidelities we build over time in order to meet us on unstable and changing environment. Um, with that in mind, I feel that, you know, the present, our contemporary conversations in crisis around the virus and climate change and all of that, you know, you could as well ask the question, Jessica, why does it, why is it that after how many years now? 50 years of talking about climate change since the 1970s. Why is it that we've, we haven't done anything really. We've done lots of things, but it seems, it seems on a whole, we haven't done much about it. It seems everything we're doing just keeps on going back to the same, to the familiar. Why is it that with all the things we know about racial um, disparities and racialization, why is, it, why is it that we've not switched it off, right? And just come out into a post-racial society. The reason we ask that question is because we think that um, humans operate by information. So the more information we have, the more we educate ourselves out of our fidelities. But our bodies exceed informational, you know, um, patterns. They are, they are migrant, they're embodied, and they are sticky. I feel we're stuck in very resilient patterns of responding to crisis. And that's the issue here. That's, that, that's the challenge. That's the shamanic <laughs> imperative there. We're stuck in, in, in very, very, you know, in historical patterns of seeing the world. And it's going to take something, you know, something shocking. It doesn't have to be monumental. I don't trust the monumental or the spectacular anymore. I'm looking for the small flights of deterritorialization. Um, the, the small bursts of messianic fury. That's what I'm attracted to. But the point here is that we are, we, the reason why we keep on doing the same thing over and over again is because of the way we eat, is because of the, 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 uh, the environment that we're raised in and that we are gestated in, is because of the way we frame news and, and education and schooling and well-being and consumerism these contingencies, these relationships shape our behavior. You should read epistemic situationism, uh, you know, these experiments of psychologists and how they noticed that the ethical leanings of judges in the court of law, for instance, was almost determined or largely influenced by, you know, what they had in the morning, breakfast, that a judge was more likely to rule with some leniency if the furniture around them was soft, right? Or if it was hard and rigid, you know, it breaks apart that liberal humanist idea that it's all in here. All we need to do is just get our act together, read all the books we can and solve our problems. But we are noticing, and I strive to emphasize um, in my work around post-activism, that even those of us that are working hard to save the planet might be reinforcing the paradigms that gave birth to the trouble in the first place. Right. Um, so I think we're going to continue for some time. I don't know. I, this is speaking out of my my derriere. But I, I think we're going to continue to do the same thing over and over again. We're going to see this as an enemy and we're going to see ourselves as the lords of the land. Um, a, a, a tsunami of epic crises and events might bear down on us. 
but we're going to find a way to reinforce our individuality. It's about me. It's about my journey. It's about us together. It's about what we do. Um, that's the reason why I'm quite apprehensive about, you know, the measures we're taking to respond to this ontological event. I don't know if that so, answered your question. It, you did absolutely answer my question. Um, so is there a value then in seeking information specifically in the form of um, academia? Um, and, and how perhaps does academia reinforce this, this paradigm and what changes would you make um, right. that could allow for a, a deeper type of uh, understanding that goes beyond just what we know or what we Whoa. think we know? Those are very, very loaded questions. Am I being interviewed for a position as vice chancellor of UCL? Because I'm, I'm down for it. <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, what would I change um, is information, definitely. Information is material. Um, we tend to think of information as just uh, heady stuff, um, ideational. Um, but I think information is material. It's material semiotic. You know? It's somatic semiotic. Um, my point is, it's the world worlds itself, not just by what we reduce and crystallize as information, right? Just like I tell people who are suddenly aware of other cosmologies, that you cannot summarily change your cosmology just because you're aware of new ones. It's not a marketplace of cosmology. It's like, oh, the Yoruba people think of the world in terms of a web of life. I like that one. What about the Indian people? They think about, you know, these a pantheon of gods and their influence in the affairs of men. Oh, I love it. You know, I think I'm going to go for that one. I'm going to, it's not a, it's not a marketplace of ideas in the way that business people frame, frame this because cosmology and even cognition is embodied. And this is from Catherine Hills, you know, the cognition, cognition goes outside of, deterritorializes the human. So how we think and how we come to think and behave, you know, is a matter of ecological shifts, right? And ecological stabilities. You can is the reason why someone who is a, let me use a United States trope, uh, someone who is a, a left-leaning Democrat, you know, who ticks all the boxes, you know, in terms of what I believe, how I cherish people, I'm for Black Lives Matter, could still at night walking on a side of the road run to the other side of the road when she or that person glimpses a black person in a hoodie, right? <laughs> it's, it's like, it's not just what we know that makes what we do. There are other things that are influential in how we come to world the world. Um, so it's not just information. And I think this is where uh, there are many things to say about academic configurations. One of which is the, one of which is the, uh, the, categorization of what we can know in terms of disciplinarity, right? So uh, this is a disciplinary route. This one, this is another one you can take. And then all of these parallel lines are divorced from each other. And the idea, the subtle idea here is, is, is that they're only, I mean, these routes of knowledge do not cross each other because the world is, amenable to human centrality. It's what we choose to know. 
and that the world isn't messy, like psychology spilling into sociology. And, and, and so the one way that I, I would, um, and I don't want to speak about this at length, but one way that I would work with that or the ways that I am working with that is to invite transdisciplinary, diffractive, interactive spaces where psychology is already a matter of furniture, right? Which is disturbing to hum- humanist paradigms, where how we eat shows up in how we study or what we choose to study, where science is not, and this is, this is largely owing to the beautiful work of feminists, uh, material ecologists, um, and people in science and STS, basically, science and technological studies, um, that science is not some divorced, you know, pre-relational knowledge that a few people with the expertise can 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 grant can be granted access into science is largely based on funding you know the size of our test tubes um the 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 shape of the software we're using so we're not producing universal knowledge science is deeply cultural science is deeply you know is closed uh, depending on the locality that is wielding those practices um yeah, that is what I think the academia is struggling with, relevance in the Anthropocene. Because if we continue to uh, produce knowledges that pretend um, to be universal, and even when we have the, our head on our shoulders and we're saying, no, there are other ways to think, it seems to still be caught up in an economy of tautology, right? Because there are other constraints on how we produce knowledge. Most people in the academic world want to produce the knowledges that they produce because they want to write books, you see, and ascend to the ranks of tenured positions, right? So there are other structures that are impinging on how we make sense of the world and how we produce knowledge. And that is, I think, one thing to consider about that question. That was great. I think it'd be really interesting if um, students were the ones to interview for the vice chancellor position, but maybe we can start a position <laughs> another time. Um, That's I know that, Yeah, I know that Tom uh, wanted to ask a few questions, so I will let Tom ask away. Thanks. Thanks, Zoe. Thanks, Bio. I really enjoyed reading your essays and listening to you speak, and uh, I've been really struck by just the invitation that you give us to feel into the awkwardness and the yeah. the confusion and um, also to really hold the question as opposed to rushing to to an answer as you yeah. say you know there's you suggest there's two ways of responding to a question uh, one is by resolution an answer clarity and the other is a rite of passage and that really resonates with me right now as a teacher, mm. uh, as someone who's really grappling with with many of these questions that you're that you're posing, and you know, also discovering for the first time scholarship, which wasn't on my syllabus as a student, and uh, is you know, Deleuze and Guattari are quite yeah. new to me, but clearly uh, perhaps incredibly important touchstones for the discussion we're having today. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I I wonder why that is the case. Uh, I also have I think in the past found some of that scholarship in that space quite formidable, difficult. <laughs> I don't yeah. find your work difficult. I find uh, <laughs> your work incredibly kind of uh, 
well, it's very it's it's very welcoming, but it's also it's quite seductive. I'm, I want to learn more. It's, you know, I feel myself sort of being drawn down this this fascinating rabbit hole here at the moment. So, uh, but when we to make it maybe more concrete, um, you know, when we when we think about climate change, we often rush to thinking, well, the the uh, the problem is carbon, or the problem is consumption. But as you sort of hold the question, what is the problem? Uh, it becomes more and more uh, perhaps interesting and difficult to, to to grasp. And, you know, it's led me to, down the road of thinking about, well, existential risk is a problem. The sixth mm-hmm. mass extinction is a problem. Mm-hmm. But then I realized that the sixth mass extinction wasn't actually initiated by us. And we're part of this process. But the sixth mass extinction has been ongoing since the beginning of the Holocene. So yeah. the, the sort of the, the biophysical, the material, the the human agency volition, it's it does leave me in quite a state of awkwardness and confusion. So how do we move forward? And this is, I suppose, getting to, to the, the nub of the matter is that it seems to me that perhaps what you're suggesting is that we need to have a sort of refoundation of what science is what inquiry means what is the purpose of inquiry is it to to accumulate knowledge is it to actually ensure that we ha- have the wisdom to proceed as a collective whatever wisdom may mean within a particular context and mm-hmm. you even trace it back to say the the schism in the enlightenment between descartes and and Spinoza, who had, had a, a very different yeah. take on sort of Western metaphysics. I find that fascinating. So perhaps you could just help me understand a little bit more. What is that schism and what have, what's been the legacy, the consequences in terms of how we understand our blind spots and the, and the, the imprisonment that we perhaps currently reside in? Mm. I think that the... Um the progress of, I, there, I, when I was an undergrad, there used to be the, these black books in the library that no one went to. I was the only nerd that went to those huge black books. And there, what was the name again? It's just something about the, the grand human experiment or something like that. I forget the name, but it, it's, it was just about the progress of, of human thought. It had these grand title. Um, and I really was fascinated by it starting with Socrates, you know, all the way to Hume and all the way to Locke and all the way down here to Darwin and everyone. It always seemed to be shaped, you know, the philosophers were mostly white mustachioed men. (laughs) I didn't see my grandmother there or the people that I've come to respect in recent times. Um, But I took it as, yeah, I mean, we don't think. Um, we don't know how to think. We need to, we need to look to the West, the stylized West, to be able to think well. Right? And I think there's something to be said about uh, my own personal, if I can speak in terms of that anymore, the personal logical, but let's go with that for the sake of conversation. My own awakening, if you will, which wasn't a single event, which wasn't a program that I could have planned, um, wasn't intended, but let's go with that as well. My own awakening and um, what I feel is the rupture, you know, in thinking today, uh, thinking not being a monolithic thing, but where it seems, at least according to one narrative, 
to be heading, right? We start out with the individual. And here I was, you know, this gangly. Uh, does gangly mean tall? It means skinny, right? Skinny, not gangly. I'm, I'm a lot picky. of limbs. Okay, a lot of limbs. That's uh, not 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 necessarily tall. Um, I'm very short. Uh, we start out there, and I was this awkward teen. Lost my father. Didn't understand how to navigate the world without him, and the stability that his masculinity provided me to navigate my own complexities. Um, and so I I jumped for the next available image. And that image was the image of the Christ, right? The Christ being the sum of the ages, you know, the, the reason for history. Uh, until that be- started to become suspect and inadequate to my growing appreciation of beauty and the politics around evangelization and religion and all of that. And I started to fall away from the truth. Um, but around this time, I had framed, you know, and this is quite personal to me because I wasn't a friendly person. I didn't have much friends. I was always in my room with Galileo on my wall. Um, and, and I would write on a personal journal to an imaginary friend that I made up whose name was um, Flavius Josephus, um, supposedly a Palestinian rabbi. Uh, that advised me on how to navigate the world. I'm taking you into my inner world right, right now, guys. You're not ready for this. <laughs> so uh, uh, he, yeah, I would write, and he would write back to me, of course, through my hand, but I never told myself that. But I, I had to, you know, create a schism or, or a dual personality thing and write back to myself and advise myself how to navigate the world, all as a result of the shift that occurred when my father passed away. Um, and I started in that dialogue to understand how truth itself was suspect, how truth was inadequate, right? And how truth was also, in some sense, at least according to um, constructionism, which I was dabbling in in that time, truth was a social construct. And that there was, there was a way to frame the world that exceeded meaning. There was a way to, there, there was a way the world, you know, was promiscuous beyond repair, right? Beyond our attempts to put it together. In a very strong sense, I mean, Deleuze represents for me, for instance, this refusal to kowtow before the forces of presence, before Plato and before, um, what's his name again? Uh, Hegel, you know, and, and all the philosophers that insisted that um, presence is a thing. And that we are individuals, basically, and we're viewing the world from our intact subjectivities. Deleuze was a rejection of that. Why do I find myself attracted to Deleuze Guattarian um, uh, paradigms? It's because what they did um, dances with the world that I'm now coming to appreciate. Right? It, it, the Yoruba people have always said that we are not quite individuals, not in that sense, but, but the effect of their stories is that we are caught up in a village, not that we are in a village, we are the village in its specificity, in its ongoing specificity. And in that sense, Deleuze captured something that was very rare, just like quantum physics 
as the mystical heart of science today as of physics is capturing something that physics does not want to appreciate. It's too controversial, you know, for classical um, ideas to articulate. And so no one talks about it. Every self-respecting physicist avoids the topic of interaction or spooky action from a distance, right? In that same sense, Deleuze might be thought of as a mystical, uh, Deleuze and Spinoza, you know, Spinoza talked about what can the body do, right? The body is not as coherent as we think it is. What can a body do, right? Those traditions dance beautifully with the world that I'm coming to appreciate. And it's taken us not in any unilateral or politically coherent way, but it, I think it's part of the influences. You know, some of the people that I really value and cherish are also playing with these ideas, right? The idea of flight, of deterritorialization, the idea of assemblage, the idea of um, constellations of bodies, the idea of schizoanalysis, you know, that, that things are not as well put together and you cannot psychoanalyze our way out of this shit. You know, we're not going to put the trouble on a client's chair and weave our way out of this one. This is something that calls on a different idea altogether. So, Tom, to answer your question, I do not think we can go forward. I do not think forward movement is possible any longer. Just like, uh, what's her name? Oh, I'm always trying to drop names that I now forget in the moment. Um, Isabel Stengers, I think, uh, or Stacey Alimo, Yes. You know, said, you know, there is no straight in the Anthropocene. Straight movement is gone in the Anthropocene. I think we can only go awkward now. It's a way to go. Awkward is a way to go. It's a fall from the grace that we once occupied, from the gilded realities we once thought ourselves masters of. And it's a place of humility and modesty. It will show up in moments when we try to book a flight, for instance, and suddenly realize it's not entirely up to us and the piece of software before us, how the flight goes. Now we have to consider the alien in the room, the one we are masking our faces, you know, to give, you know, to worship. Now we have to give social distance between ourselves. It's as if we're creating six feet for the God that has descended, you know, six feet of space for the God that has descended. So awkward is a political project for me. Deleuze called it, the politics of imperceptibility, right? The politics of going invisible. Others might think of it as fugitivity. I think of it as fugitivity, as untold fugitivity, that the philosophies and cosmology that created the pandemic that is creating the Anthropocene, cultural moments, all of them, you know, they do not know what to do with this with the world changing. All of these tools and technologies were built from stability. Now, instability is the order of the day or the disorder of the day, and we don't know what to do with it. So we need to go underground, you see. We need a different kind of activism, weird politics, that is not about subjects reclaiming power from establishment, but it's about finding other places of power. Let me stop there before I give a keynote. <laughs> that was great. And I actually would like to pick up, uh, I think, where you left off. So you spoke yeah. earlier about the, the post-Holocene settlement, uh, yeah. the white modernity and grappling with the consequences, historical right. consequences. Uh, how do we respond in, in the current situation? Emphasis on, uh, on responsibility to yes. sort of legacies of injustice. 
And there's lots of there's lots of ways in which it seems, you know, thinking inside the box, we do respond. Uh, so yeah. questions of reparations, for example, questions of yes. symbolic apology, uh, decolonizing yes. our syllabuses within the universities. Yeah. Um, yeah. Questions of really clarifying the relationship between the globally governed and the global governors. Um, yes. But again, it seems yes. to be operating with those binaries. <laughs> and you've written that uh, no justice could be enough that is already programmatically connected to the circumstances that produce injustice. Yeah. You said saying sorry is not enough. A deeper sort of accountability is needed, one that brings us to the edges of ourselves. So I'm curious to ask what, you know, given we're not moving forward and it's, we, we're having, it's, it's a state of emergency as you've put it, um, yeah. what, what would authentic justice and accountability look like or, or feel like? Justice comes across to me as a butler in a mansion. Um, and this butler, uh, permit me to nerd out for a bit, is like, uh, what's Bruce Wayne's uh, butler? What's Bruce? Anyone here? Can Alfred. Sam? Al Alfred. There you go. <laughs> a nerd like me, Sam. Um, it's like Alfred or any other butler. And this butler will give you a seat at the table. Right? It will show you the table. It will pull out the chair. It will serve you everything you want on the menu. And it seems minoritarian politics today is anchored to the quest for a seat at the table. Um, so justice is like this butler that we're seeking his service and service is to give us a place, a place we can rest and plant our feet and pay our bills. But justice will not show us the key to the house. Justice will not allow us to play outside. It's a, justice is a disciplinarian. It's a creature, a software, a program of the state, you see, um, and it will keep us indoors. And I think the house is crumbling right now. The house is showing cracks everywhere. But justice wants to keep us in. Well, we need a way out. That's one way I would frame this story. Um, recently, Germany gave Namibia 1 billion euros to account for the genocide of the, was it the early 19th century? Um, was it 1803 or something? I forget the exact date. But there, um, a, a certain groups of people, tribes, were killed um, by Germans, um, counting to hundreds of thousands. Um, they gave them $1 billion recently, spread out over 30 years. Justice which made me laugh immediately I read the news. Now, you could say that's great. People could use that money, right? Definitely. If I were among those bereaved and aggrieved peoples, I would probably take the money. The, the people, however, laughed and said, actually, we need a trillion dollars, <laughs> right? Um, which which, which um, instigated even more laughter from me because it's like climate activists or policymakers giving a dollar amount to the ocean, like saying the ocean costs $1 trillion. 
right? As a way to stop people from devaluing the ocean. But to name the ocean according to a dollar amount is already a form of, you know, ethical, is already a form of epistemological devaluation in itself, right? So what, what's the cost of a whale, Tom? <laughs> How much does a whale cost? Not the one that you've sliced and diced and you're ready to eat, but a whale singing its song or a dolphin jumping out of the ocean and going back. And what's the price of that moment? So you see, I feel that everything that we can do within this box, some of them we celebrate, some of them we might feel inadequate, but it seems that until something transversal ruptures the assemblage of responsivities that we're used to and accustomed to, even justice will not be enough, right? But what's the price for, for breaking the neck of a black man in the United States? What, what's the amount that would be enough for that moment? Or would reparations really speak to the bodies that were dumped in the Atlantic um, in crossing during the Middle Passage? Would it account for Bakita, the slave woman in Rio de Janeiro in Caisto Valongo, whose grave is opened, a crack in the ground, and whose voice and bones are still calling forth, you know, and calling out modernity? What price is enough? So I think it's the idea of a price in itself. It's the idea, it's the, it's the ecology, the husbandry, the economy of relations that seems to be the issue. Walter Benjamin noticed this. He said, history itself is the issue, right? And I see this angel that is, whose back is turned to, um, to the future and is trying his best to contain the explosion that gave birth to history, right? So it, to him, Progress, progressivism wasn't going to solve the problem. It was time that was the problem. It was history, modern history, progressivism, you know, consumerism, capitalism, that's the problem. So uh, I, I don't feel that we, uh, I, I think something else is needed. I, I do not think it's in our power to produce these things unilaterally because that would be a reinscription of anthropocentricity, our centrality. I think that how we move is a matter of gift, is a matter of interruptions, Baudelaire's counterfeit coin, something coming into the economy and upturning, upsetting the ways that we relate with each other, such as this virus. That's a lot to think about. Thank you so much, uh, Bio. Um, Sam, I think, had another question, so I will hand over to Sam. Thanks, Zoe. Yeah, so... To pick up on the Bruce Wayne mansion metaphor, Yay. but also to draw on the uh, themes of kind of fugitivity and deterritorialization that you've mentioned, um, what does home mean to you? Um, and to kind of flesh that out a bit more, it seems that a lot of issues um, at the moment, so climate change or you know your regular conflict, revolve around the idea of home. You know, climate change will be a problem for the UK when it when it starts to lap at our shores and um you know the us will invade or, or interact with certain countries when it might be harming the homes of us citizens so if we're thinking about us uh, human beings as being connected in a web what is the role of 
thinking about a home and a locality. Um, and I'm, I'm also just thinking about, you know, Salman Rushdie mentioned the idea of a broken mirror. So he can only talk about his India and a broken mirror perspective mm. on thinking about your home. Or, or the, there's a great novel by a guy called um, Teju Cole called Open City, uh, where yes. a Nigerian goes to uh, uh, New York and is kind of confronted with the s- spatial relations of, of being a Nigerian. And, and um, I just wanted, to, you know, wondered if you could have kind of riff. It's not a question. And I think you mm-hmm. know, this podcast uh, episode has been about uh, how, the kind of how questions are often fraught. You know? So I just wondered if you could riff on the idea of home and, and whether it's uh, worthwhile. Mm. Uh, there is a, a great philosophical project that's called um, Thor chap- uh, Part 3 in the Marvel Cinematic Universe <laughs> uh, where Thor in a in some kind of a spiritual connection with his father, Odin, you know, mourns his failure to provide a home for Asgardians. Um, And he says he's failed. And Odin responds in a way that an Anthony Hopkins inflected Odin only can. (laughs) He says, Asgard can be anywhere. Asgard can be there, it can be here. Asgard is not a place, it is our people. Right. Um, so once in a while, beyond the popcorn themes of heroism and saving the day that the Marvel Cinematic Universe produces, um, which drives me towards being a DC person for life, Batman is just more compelling to me. Um, with all these shadows, um, sometimes some, some nugget, some treasure like that drops into our laps. I think home is not a place. I think home is a place-making project. Home is a place-making practice. Who are the practitioners? Sam, the people around Sam, the microbial activisms within Sam, the ideology swirling around us, right? It is, it is a parliament of alien voices and agencies that make home possible or impossible, right? So it, it is never a human project exclusively. It is us together. This, this is why we have rites of passage. This is why a boy in Kenya, I think they've stopped those traditions, but a Maasai boy would head into the wilds to confront a beast, a lion, um, and to bring back the mane and the skin of the lion is to have been granted permission to become a man, you see. Um, And that's not quite an answer to the question of home. Like the question of home is always to be postponed. We can only speak about home in retrospect, I think. And I wrote a whole book about home and I don't still know how to answer the question about home. I think the reason why I wrote these words beyond our fences is especially to answer the question of home was to say that the, the question of home is unanswerable. I mean, for those who haven't read the book, I don't care about spoiler alerts. That's a Western thing. I'm going to tell you that at the end of the book, 
you know, the ritual that I set out to, to perform to answer the question of home is incomplete. I never finish it. It's undone. And I, I, I try to make a point with that incompleteness that home is postponed. We only look back on home, right? In, in these times, I think the incompleteness of home becomes a different homemaking project, right? Modernity is the promise of completeness and completion, right? It's the, it's the promise that, you know, these are the boundaries, those are the wilds, and this is the city. You are a citizen. Do you have your passport? Do you have an identity? Do you have a job? Do you have some money? You're complete. This is home, right? It's a planet terraforming project. It's a way of making home, right? And what's missing in that project of making home is that nothing is missing, <laughs> right? Is that suddenly this idea of completion becomes toxic in itself. And then the invitation of home, especially that that is produced and secreted like pheromones from an ant trail, is this invitation to long for openings, porosity, you know, that maybe home cannot be completed. And maybe that the only way we answer the question of home is to embark on homemaking projects that are modest reassemblies, you know, reassemblages of our bodies in connection to the world around us. Just terrific. Thank you so much, Bio. That really resonates. I find that um, we're so keen to pigeonhole each other and ourselves and it ends up being that you, by choosing one, you close yourself off to so much, which, which could give you so much. Um, yeah. But Jess has a question, I think. So Jess, please. Um, yes, I do. Um, I feel as though through a lot of your work, there is a sort of an undefined uh, separation between macro and micro level movement and yes. um, evolution. Um, and I would be curious to unpack that a little bit. I, I know we're running low on time and it's probably not a short topic, but um, <laughs> um, I suppose just to make it a little bit more concrete, um, there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of vernacular associated with decolonizing individual mindsets. Um, but yet repositioning the anthrop anthropocentrism is not available unilaterally, you know, as you said. And so I suppose my question is, how do you separate individual versus collective movement? And uh, how can we contribute to a, a larger progress uh, as one piece? Hmm. Hmm. You know how people say, let's not do individual, let's do collective, you know, I mean, you know how they mean that? I think they're still saying the same thing, right? Like, like indiv individuality is reproduced in collectivity. Right? It's reproduced in collectivity. It's, it's now individuals and a bunch of other individuals, right? It, right? I think the idea is, something more animal than the individual. And, and that is what I'm trying to stress here. And I've since given up on the notion of my personal salvation, which was my main deal for a long time. It was about me getting woke. 
It was about me learning more and more things so that I could respond righteously to the craziness of the world beyond me. Um, you know, and then one day I looked and I couldn't find me in a simple way, right? I had to go past the mirror to look outside the window to see my body, if you understand, right? That I was no longer contained, so to speak. So I think the individual is a practice. Individualism is a collective practice, right? Um, it is how cities produce bodies, how cities produce meaning, how cities produce agency, how cities manufacture and contain desire, right? Um, and how they legislate or discipline desire as well. But I feel, coming from the relational ontologies that I sometimes play with, um, that we are molecular, we are constantly spilling, right? We don't have language for that all the time, but we are, we're, we're, I think it's so boring when I say these days that we're ecological becomings, but I don't know how else to say it sometimes, but that we spill, it's not just billions of cells that we lose each day. It's not that, it's not just that we're, we're spilling away into dust. It's not just that we're ancestral dreams. You know, it, it's, it's all of these all of these and more. It's Zoe's um, desire and unbridled promiscuous passions, you know, spilling away from the moralistic containers, you know, that seek to, you know, even sometimes maybe with her permission, that seek to contain her, right? That seek to name her finally and lose sight of the many dimensions, the multidimensionality that cannot be healed by any stable language or grammar, right? So I'm speaking about what Hortense Spillers might call the flesh, right? Maybe somewhere beyond individuality and collectivism is the spillage of flesh, Jessica, right? Flesh being something more monstrous and chimeric, something like a chiasmus, you know, something like a highway rubber, you know, coming once in a while, just doing other things beyond what we think, you know, is possible. Um, what do we do? I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know how to answer that question. I'm just smitten. I'm slain before this mountain that is, that is now me, Jessica. And I really struggle to find a word for it. It's like all of a sudden, now that um, my agency is no longer tethered to my unique histories, but is now, you know, a matter of, you know, the world beyond, the world that was supposedly neatly configured to be outside of me. Now that I'm caught up with all of that, what does it mean to be an individual? What does it mean to act upon the world then? Um, I think there, without trying to reduce everything to some cosmic goo, you know, where everyone is acting at once, you know, I know it's possible to think about individuation that is still contingent upon external forces. But the idea of externalizing those forces is, is also problematic, right? Because they're not external. The external is already inside. You know, ecology is already internal. So what was your question again, Jessica? 
how how do we t- <laughs> like, um Oh my I goodness. don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> it's what I do. It's how I it's how I got my wife. Actually, it's it's it was just talking, and then she just said, "Why are we doing this again?" And before she knew, she was married. So that's. Uh... I suppose <laughs> I I think um, <laughs> I attribute a great uh, liberation or a great freedom to the connections and the being part of a whole that you describe and. Personally, I think I'm very much still shackled to ideas of, of societal perception and um, of a path and an appropriate success. And I think I strive to uh, sort of break break free of, of that and, and yet uh, want to contribute to the world around me in a positive way. So I, I think that... Uh, yeah, I don't even know if I really have a question, but um, uh, your work really, really spoke to me in, in terms of, of the, the kind of fusion between micro and macro level interactions. And yeah. that yeah. is something that, that really resonated. I, I don't, I, I think the struggle is real. I think the, you know, we're constantly um, going back and forth between how we think about a world that is now differencing differentiation, right? A world that is is never stable. The imminent is real. The, it's not a division between the transcendent and the ordinary. It's just this imminent, this vast divine sacred imminence. Um, the struggle is real. But here's here's what I think about that, that beyond the struggle, you are already saved. <laughs> Let me put it that way, Right. Maybe some of the struggle is how do I respond all right? How do I correct things? How do I respond to a world? Um, and the way we purpose ourselves or configure ourselves or arrange our bodies to do that is to get the right training, uh, uh, align ourselves with the right ideas, the right ideas, the right people, and maybe flowing from the right beliefs. You know, we could give birth to right action. But I, I, I think that that is deeply cognocentric, you know, it's deeply humanocentric um, because even with the right action, there's horrible suffering. You should read Ursula Le Guin's um, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas, short story about um, ethical impossibilities, how people that are activists and doing the right thing and promoting the right science are actually doing this on the backs, you know, on the back of the suffering of a single child in a wardrobe somewhere on the ground beneath that city, right? And that the day that anyone tries to save that child from her suffering, the whole world would end effectively, right? So in a sense, even your good works, even putting, even getting all the things that Tom could teach us to do, and the UCL degrees that we might amass to ourselves, getting all of that in tow, you know, is no guarantee that we are not participating in strange ways. Right. So that, that's what I want to, that's what I want to point out, that the struggle is real, but our work is intergenerational and failure is always to be accounted for. We're going to fail. Just like that you know, dear friend of mine would say, um, 
that everything, everything we love, we will lose, you know, and it's such a humbling thing to think about. I'm also saying that no matter what we learn, no matter how good we are, we will fail. We are already failing at this point in time in pre-intentional ways. That's right. That's really humbling for me. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, I guess just to kind of round off, I'm very aware of time. Um, so Jess, Sam and I uh, all finished our master's approximately, I'd say like a year ago this week or like today or something. Um, right. And that Congratulations. Oh, <laughs> and that time of transition is already, I think, quite a, I want to say, I want to use the word disturbing, maybe, um, one to navigate, let alone navigate that with sort of the pandemic. Um, I was going to say post-COVID, but I don't think we are going to exist in a world post-COVID. No, it just no, is the world now. Um, yep. Added on top of that transition. Um, so what would be one thing that would you would want us and people in similar positions to us to take away from, from this conversation? No, that's such a beautiful question to end with because it takes us right back to the beginning. And I like to end in the beginning or begin at the end, you know, because I love the middle. Um, because we started out with Zoe, you speaking about your porosities and being, um, oh, you're too sensitive or, or stuff like that. Um, and the constraints on personality and personhood and how you're performing that or navigating that. And I think that that's one way to end this with an invitation that where you can find such a politics as a gift, um, rush to it. That, that I think we need to do more listening than talking. So it says this person who speaks too much. Um, I, I think we need to press our ears to the ground and feel our way through errant cartographies. I think we need to learn how to make home a different way. I think we, learn, we need to learn how to make room for death and dying. That death and dying need new cosmologies, new mythologies. The more we think about death as a terminal point, which is the dream of modernity, the more we will try, we will keep on practicing life as a prison cell, right? All we can grab here so we can take to the great beyond or all we can grab here because there's nothing afterwards. But if we see death as a, as a terrain, as a rich topography um, of manifold becomings, um, then maybe there's, there's hope for shapeshift Right? So I think it's time to make sanctuary, not as a project of safety or to save ourselves, um, to protect ourselves from the storm outside because we are the storm outside, you see. I think it's time to make sanctuary as a project for, of birthing the new. Like in a world that is starved of trees, to have a, mid, a circle of midwives surround uh, a leaf that is suddenly bursting from the ground. I could think of no um, project as urgent as slowing down to notice that. Um, and my work at the moment, if I could think of it as my work, is about working with a politics or trying to articulate a politics 
in all the fragile ways that I can with the people that I am called to work with um, that might invite that kind of work of staying with the trouble and making sanctuary in these end times. The end. <laughs> I was so beautiful and so moving thank you so so much for being here with us today bio that was thank you that has made my day probably my week thank you so much <laughs> i'm grateful thank you thank you yeah thank you so much bio really appreciate it thank you so much thank you thank you thanks for tuning into global governance futures to get access to all of our content and to stay up to date with future Zoom calls, workshops and events and more, check us out at ucl.ac.uk forward slash global governance. And if you like this content, please do leave us a comment and subscribe. Until next time.